Hey guys, Pastor Jurgen here. I'm so glad you're tuning into one of our powerful messages that is guaranteed to absolutely elevate your life to another level. At Awaken, we only want to preach fresh, real, powerful to help you grow stronger in your walk with God, develop your faith so you can take more territory. I'm praying that God blesses you and enriches your soul as you listen to this amazing word from God. God bless you. It is, uh, it is really cool that Awaken has been this really amazing series. It's a wonderful life. and. Um, it's interesting because it's brought out of me getting, getting to the privilege of getting to share in the last several weeks. It's brought out of me messages that I haven't shared before, things that come up in my work and have been pivotal in my own relationship with God and my own growth, but I've never gotten to share with them, uh, share about them before. And it's, it's so powerful to me that this happens at the season of Christmas where the pivotal linchpin moment of history, the moment that we can base all of our joy on, is also... It's also the moment that the world wants to hijack and it wants to say joy to the world means don't you want more Starbucks or it means this, it means commercial, it means something different. And I am for coffee. I love coffee. I love Christmas presents. I love Christmas traditions. Um, I don't think we need to vilify the fun of Christmas, of the, the, the rituals and the traditions. But just like Pastor Lisa was teaching, that was a phenomenal word, that as we see ourselves, as we see ourselves drifting and like, oh, this is getting a little bit of energy. And she takes this step back and she just takes a break and she breaks that power that we need to return to. Okay, the joy of Christmas is not the joy of these traditions. It is the joy of remembering that God loves us so much. He took our sin onto his own body so that we could be reconciled to him. And the, the message that I was going to talk about, this is called the strength of joy. The reason I call it that is because when Paul is talking to the Philippians, when Nehemiah is talking to the Israelites, there are several places throughout the Bible that when they are calling out the, the reader of the letter, the people of God, when they're calling it, this is a moment where you need to have strength. It's so odd to me that the thing that they command them to do is have joy. They command them to rejoice. And so it's so important for us growing up in a culture that uses the word joy and happy kind of interchangeably to be able to name like those are actually two different things. They're both good things. Joy is something much deeper than what Target wants to tell you joy is, right? Joy, when, when Target uses the word joy, what they really mean is happy. They mean like happy to the world. They mean like come and have some fun, have good traditions. Those are great things. I'm all about them. But it's not what joy is. We're going to look at Paul, and he's going to take us really deep into what joy is. And it prepares us to, to realize that it's actually something we have to be intentional about, strategic about. We have to cultivate it in our life. Just like Pastor Lisa was teaching, we have to, we have to like keep our eyes on our joy, and we need to protect it. Uh, there, was, there was a really powerful kind of turning point moment in my relationship to my own kind of emotional health and joy in the early months of the COVID pandemic where I remember sitting at home and I was uh, pretty much going along like most people, like, oh, this is a really weird thing that we're going through. I've never stayed home from work before. Um, being, being in private practice, I actually never had to stay home one time. It was kind of nice. But I was like, this is very strange. But I wasn't, I wasn't overwhelmed by it. I wasn't worried about things. And then there was this really strange afternoon where I, I just started reading an article and it led to another article and that led to another article. And something like, 
25, 35 minutes later, I had this like wake up call that I had gone from a state of calm to a state of like borderline panic. Like I was worried about like, am I going to take my kids to the store? Am I going to do this? Am I going to do that? How am I going to live my life? And, and I stopped reading an article that was about a specific person's story in Italy. And now I started to read, that is a story about my life everywhere. Danger is everywhere. And I realized like, whoa, in 30, 40 minutes, I went from a place of calm to a place of fear. And if I hadn't had awakened church, I was so, I consider myself so privileged that maybe a year or two before COVID hit, I discovered Awakened Church and I had this anchor in my life to go through that storm. And I had these voices that I respected that said, do not fear, God is still in control. Oh man, we are lucky. Um, and there was this moment where uh, I, got a, I got a notice on my phone and it, it looks kind of silly and harmless. I didn't know what it was. So I called a, a family member who works for Apple because it was an Apple notification. And I said, what is this thing? He said, oh my gosh, Brian, it's so cool. COVID-19 exposure notifications this is basically how it works. You have to sign up for it because you're basically relinquishing your HIPAA rights of privacy by doing this. You have to sign up for it. And what, what the way it works is if you get COVID, you tell Apple that you're an infectious disease and then Apple collects everybody's data. And if you're, this is the example that he happened to give me on the phone. He said, if you're standing in line at the grocery store and somebody near you has reported positive for, for COVID, your phone will notify you, you're near an exposure, you're in danger. And I thought to myself, if I was going to custom design an app that the purpose of the app was to give people anxiety disorders, that is the app I would design. Because I would say, okay, uh, first of all, I'd want to clarify with the person. I'd say, you want, you want to heal? You want to help anxiety? No, no, no. We want to give people with no anxiety, we want to give them new anxiety. It's like, okay. Um, it's a little unethical, but what I would probably do if I was going to design that, I would say what I want to do is I want an app that is going to intrude into their day randomly when they don't expect it, when they're driving in their car, when they're listening to worship music, when they're connecting with their friend, just intrude when they're feeling safe and remind them that there's danger nearby and particularly danger that they can't see and most effectively invisible danger that they can do nothing about. <laughs> I think, man, that is... So odd that our culture would actually prize this as like a huge win. Like, because he was really excited about the app. Uh, I didn't tell him how I felt. You know, you, you don't need to tell, when they already know, you don't need to tell them. That's not always true. I'm not, that's not part of the sermon. I'm just saying, in that moment, in that moment, it wasn't the time. But it really, it really highlights it highlights how, okay, we can't have casual kind of bystander, passive relationship with our, our minds and our thoughts and what we let in in our emotional worlds. We need that intentional guarding that uh, Pastor Lisa just talked about where, no, no, I'm noticing that, oh, I, I sense a drift and I probably only sense it because I'm really healthy and I sense this drift and I'm going to correct early in the process because the world wants to convince you that you're not safe. That is... That is a real message that we get constantly around us all the time. And you couple that with this kind of quirky thing about your brain. I don't know if you know this. 
your brain is actually an incredibly lazy organ. God designed it that way. It's not a bad thing. And by lazy, I don't mean that it doesn't like to work. By lazy, I mean that it really likes to work as little as possible. And so your brain is a very, very glucose-intensive organ. In fact, it consumes more glucose than any other single part of your body. It even consumes more glucose in some cases than your muscles. So like in a resting moment like this where you're just listening, unless you're like, I really don't like this guy, unless you're really triggered by me, a moment like this, your brain is consuming about 20% of the glucose in your body. That's a lot. One fifth of your whole body, the glucose that's being consumed is in your brain right now. In a moment of really intense cognitive work, like when you're in my office and you really hate me, those moments your brain is consuming about 60% of the total consumption of glucose in your body. Or if you don't like carbs, ketones, if you're a weirdo. Um, but because of that, because it is a really powerful organ, it runs on electricity. And the thing that catalyzes that electricity is glucose. Your body is where I need to automate as much of my thinking as possible. And so there was a study done back in 2019 where a guy out of Stanford said, okay, I want to get a snapshot of about how many thoughts everybody has per day. His conclusion was on average, people have about 60,000 thoughts a day. Based on his data, about 92% of those thoughts, so somewhere around 54,000 thoughts a day, are completely automatic. Automatic is slippery. It's, It's a powerful tool if those automatic thoughts are in alignment with God's truth, because that means I am My autopilot is keeping me in peace. But when I have intrusions, like things tell me, hey, you're in danger. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't see it, but just be on your guard. When I have intrusions like that in my life all the time, autopilot actually diverts. It defaults to fear. And so this is something we have to take really seriously and be intentional about. There is a powerful moment in in the letter of Philippians where Paul attacks this on a very, very practical level. So I just want to read, this is the end of Philippians. It's helpful to understand that Paul wrote Philippians in prison on death row. So when Paul wrote this letter, he was chained up and he was sentenced to be killed. He didn't know when, and he had not yet concluded that his story was over. He says, I don't know what God's going to do, but he writes this letter. He writes these words on death row. He basically, he opens the very, very end. So he's gone through the majority of the letter. This is like, okay, those final thoughts. If I leave you with nothing else, hear this. And he says to the people writing the letter, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. It's odd to me that the happiest book in the Bible, the book with, I think, the highest per capita use of the word rejoice, per word, per capita, is a book written by a guy sentenced to be killed. Just when I was talking to my friend about it, I was like, Man, what if, because it's easy when it's, when it's God's word, it's the Bible, and, and, and we, we hear other forms of religious texts and other forms of ancient texts that it's easy for us to like read this as kind of not real. But like, I just had the thought, what if that was my friend? What if Paul was a buddy of mine? What if we used to like set up our church plant seats together on Sunday morning? What if somebody I knew, and he was wrongfully imprisoned, he was an innocent man who I knew, I cared about him, And on death row, he wrote me a letter. And in the end of the letter, he says, Brian, I just want you to know, no matter what's going on, don't forget to rejoice. That there is is a powerful tool that's in this guy's tool belt. There's something that we, is not normal to us. So he goes on, it's important to understand the word rejoice too. It's not, I don't think how we really think of the word rejoice. The word rejoice in the Greek, which is the language that he wrote in, is the word kara, 
which comes from the word karya, which means to lean into or to practice an awareness of grace. It is not feel good. That's actually not what Paul's saying. Rejoicing does lead to feeling good. But what Paul is saying is remember to be aware of God's grace. No matter what's going on, in all conditions, do not forget to remember God's grace. And it's a letter that is to a really important people that, that are dear to his heart. Because Philippi was a city in Macedonia where there was no, there was no Christianity. There was no um, Hebrew tradition. There were no like historic roots. He went through this as a people that would have been called pagan, right? The only um, gods that the Philippians were aware of are the Greek gods, so Zeus and Poseidon and Hera. And these were gods that their relationship to God was based on, I'm angry with you, and so you sacrifice things until I'm happy with you and things go well. And then Paul comes along, and the good news of the gospel, that God, God is actually not so angry with you that you need to give something up until you've suffered enough. God actually loves you so much, he wants to suffer for you so that you can be reconciled to him. And this brand new body is born in Philippi, right? This brand new church, this, this church that has transcended cultural boundaries and religious boundaries, and there's this precious community to him. And he goes on and he says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And that is, that is easy to miss because what he's saying is, if you really know what it means to rejoice, then you're going to cultivate something internally that does not, that we can't counterfeit. Let your gentleness, let the authentic peace of what you feel, of the experience and what, you, what it means to be rooted in God, let, that, let people see that. And it's, it's something that we, I think, try to fake quite a bit. Happy reveals if we're faking it. There was a moment really recently with my youngest daughter. She just turned 10. We were working out those teeth and she was losing what is probably her last tooth. In Jesus' name, please let that be her last tooth. And it was, it was like, there was anxiety around it. You could tell because she was putting it off. It was way too long. It was like, the next tooth is like almost in place by the time. And I'm like, girl, this thing's got to go. The dentist is going to like rebuke me the next time we go. So I, I'm, I'm negotiating with my daughter. We have to pull it out. Here's, here's what we do with the floss. It's not that big a deal. And she's like really worried. I'm like, honey, honey, don't worry about it. I'm a mental health professional, so there's a lot of grace here. Don't worry about it. Never calmed anybody down in the history of the world. It's never been helpful. And I, can, I continue to like coach her through. We're going to get this. I'm like, she's going to, I'm going to get you to let me tie this thing around you. And she's saying, no, no, no. The anxiety is like, honey, honey, honey. I said, I said, don't worry. About it. I told you there's nothing to worry about. And now I'm getting frustrated. And so I go back into like coaching. I go back and this is what's going to happen. And then she stops me again. And this is like the moment where you have the wake up call and you're like, ooh, okay. I said something to the effect of, how many times do I have to tell you, stop worrying or don't worry, there's nothing to be afraid of. And it was like, if my tone of voice and my body language could talk, would they have communicated, don't worry about it? Or with my frustration and my overwhelm, I'm commanding that you do something I'm not doing right now. And with the bottom line of what he said, let your gentleness be evident to all, meaning I can't give you a peace that I'm not authentically walking in. I can fake it for a minute, but then she started to cry, and then I started to cry, and we reset the whole thing. Um, she let the dentist take the tooth out, which is so irritating. 
Yes. I did it. That was my fault. I did it. But yeah, we can't give somebody something that we're not walking in. We can't share them with them something that we are not walking in. There's actually a moment in 9 a.m. service that the, the worship team, something, had, something was out of alignment. I couldn't hear it. It sounded amazing to me, but the, the worship leaders could hear it. And Denise was up here, and she actually paused, and she looked over at the musicians, and she said, we're actually going to reset this. And it's one of those moments where it's like, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen? You, know, you don't know which way it's going to go. And Denise and DJ were in such calm. They were so focused on God's glory. You could just feel Denise was going to worship the Lord. This song was going to go good. You guys can come with me or stay behind. It was amazing that seamlessly the song reset. And honestly, it felt like it deepened the worship in that moment. The fact that she had just this like passionate fixation on the Lord, she just led us with her presence that if she had been anxious, that moment would have gone very differently. But because she was worshiping, she brought us along with her. We can't give other people something we don't have. And then he goes on after that and he says, be anxious for nothing. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And, and it's it almost like that sentence almost starts out sounding like my coaching. Just stop being anxious. Don't be anxious about anything. And it's important that we understand, Paul is not saying don't feel anxiety. Paul is saying, don't become identified with your anxiety. And he goes on to actually teach us how, because that word anxiety, that anxious in what we read in English, right? The word we read is anxious. The word that they read is a word, marina, which I had to look it up. This is new for me. Marina actually doesn't mean anxiety, that their language is a little bit more complex. It's words that it's squeezed together. That's how Greek works. And this word means actually to take care of or, t- or give care to, meaning give your thoughts to. What he's saying is be anxious for nothing. Don't let anything that causes anxiety occupy your thoughts. Don't give the work of your thought life over to things that activate anxiety. And that is powerful because what he's given us is a litmus test, huh? He's given us a way to sort out, am, am I thinking in alignment with God's truth and God's love, or am I not? How do I know? If I'm feeling anxiety, I'm out of alignment. Does that mean that if we have aligned thoughts, we'll never feel anxious? No, that's not what it means. It means if my thought loop is causing and activating and increasing anxiety, God gave me this wonderful alarm system called your emotion to let you know, ooh, you're actually, you're, you're actually drifting out of alignment with my truth. You're drifting out of my covering. You're worrying about things that I did not design you to worry about. You're worrying about things that you're not in control of. And it becomes a, a, like a little dashboard light that says, you, oh, it's time, to, it's time to pull back into my lane. Does that make sense? And it goes back to, or I'm sorry, it, it, comes to the, it brings us to the next verse where he says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And this was, this was a moment for me where my wife, just blew me away. I was talking to her about this, and I was like, I don't, I, don't really know, I don't really know what to say here because it feels so intuitive. Like, the peace of God guards your heart and your mind. I mean, oh, like, it comforts you. If I'm in peace, I feel comforted. But the thing is, I've never struggled with pervasive anxiety. And so I'm thinking somewhat abstractly. I, I kind of default to, it's going to work out. That's kind of my default. My wife has hard-won victory 
because she has had a struggle with anxiety. She said, oh, I, I read that verse very differently. She says, when I read that verse, I see, I see like a wall. Like that makes, that makes so much sense to me what Paul is saying is that when I am in God's peace, it's like being on the inside of a big wall. And I can hear that there's chaos on the outside of the wall. I can hear that there's chaos outside, but I don't have to be affected by it. That peace actually becomes, it actually becomes a space that I can discern what God is. Because what happens when all the traffic in your mind is anxious? An anxious thought goes through and it doesn't stand out. It just blends in. And so to being able to discern, like, which, what, what thoughts are from God? What thoughts are not from God? What thoughts are, are, like, bringing me towards him? How do I ground myself? Everything is chaos. There's no protection. So peace actually becomes a calm space that now when an anxious thought intrudes, I'm able to say, oh, that's, that feels different. There was a, when, I, when she was reflecting that back to me, I was like, I know exactly what you're talking about because I got married with some blind spots. I got married with some, some unhealthy things that your marriage is this, this powerful incubator that God designed to bring your wounds and to bring your shortcomings to the surface. It's beautiful that way. And mine worked, my marriage worked. And so a couple years into my marriage, I had a lot of hidden behavior. I had, I had sexual stuff, and I had, I had um, flirtatious stuff, I had all this hidden behavior. I didn't realize until there was a moment of confession, and there was a moment where God shone a light of truth in my life, and my life was revealed to somebody. I didn't notice that the shame and the anxiety that came with hiding had actually become normalized to me. It was my normal. And so the, the revelation I had when my wife was sharing her perspective with me, I was like, you know what? There are still moments every once in a great while where that old memory of shame, what it feels like in your body, it gets activated. There was a, mem- there was a moment a couple months ago where there was like a, a strange course of events and there was, it was like some unintentional things happened and I was basically having coffee with a woman and I hadn't told my wife about it, which is not part of our, uh, the way we do marriage, right? We, we spend time with the other sex, but it's obviously exposed and, and we speak into each other's life and that's how we maintain solid connection and trust. But there's just this weird order of events where I'm finding myself and my wife texted me in the middle of the coffee and I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't tell her about this. And, and it was weird, the memory or the, the, the conditions where I had accidentally not told my wife about these, the, the coffee activated a feeling of hiding, a feeling of shame shot through my body. And I'm like, I remember what that felt like to live in this all the time. But now, because peace is my default, now that intrudes, I'm like, I don't care what this costs me. I'm getting rid of this feeling. I don't care who I have to confess to. I don't care what I need. I don't need, care if I need to be corrected or disciplined. Man, I am never going back to that. Peace guards our mind by resetting our normal. Are you with me? And the very end of it says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. And he gives us actually a very, very concrete practice. He actually tells us exactly what to do. That peace is not a matter of your circumstances, the conditions around you going right. It's a matter of your focus. It's a matter of redirection. So when something anxious intrudes, if my mind is rooted in the peace of God, an alarm system goes off. It says, that's foreign to me. That doesn't feel good. Anxiety, uncertainty, fear, that doesn't feel like God. A little alarm system goes off and I redirect my attention and I root it in. And he gives you examples. He says, what, root it in what's true. 
Rooted in what's good. What, is, what has God done in your life that is praiseworthy? Go back to that. And he gives you this very concrete practice. He says, I know what it means. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And at first sight, that feels so encouraging because it's like, oh, there's a secret. There's something he knows that I don't know. There's something you need to be taught. This is not intuitive. Somebody has to show you what to do when anxiety is taking over. And then he goes on to say, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, through Christ who gives me strength. And honestly, I know this is not a spiritual thing to say. My first thought when I read that is like, that's not helpful. I'm glad you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. What do you do? It's like, it's like the guy who's like really good at a sport and you go up and you say, what's your secret? And he says, I'm really good. Like that doesn't feel helpful. But God has designed his word so perfectly. In fact, in, in my doctorate program, one of the classes we take is called um, uh, teaching, teaching and hermeneutics. I can't remember the, the title of the class, but basically it's, it was a, a study on what's happening in the brain while you're learning something. And one of the things they covered, what I thought was so powerful, like, oh, that is why God designed his word that way. Is that your brain has to, has to reach a certain threshold of work. It has to work hard enough before information becomes a discovery. So I can hear information, but my software doesn't get updated. I can hear information and it doesn't necessarily feel real to me. It doesn't change the way that I think or change the way that I live. My brain has to be engaged in that information to where it works hard enough for the electrons to pass through a new pathway and actually carve a new route. And so God designed his word that he doesn't just drop it in your lap. He designed his words like, how hard are you willing to work for this? Because all the insight, everything we need to heal anxiety is right there in this very, very short passage. And he goes on to say, I can do all things through Christ who saves me. So what he's saying is he has a different orientation than some of us. His, his automatic orientation, his, his default mode is, I don't know what's going to happen in my life, but I know that if I root my, my attention, my focus, if I root myself in Christ, I know that I can do it. I know that he'll carry it through me. So it's much more, this is the byproduct, this is the result of what he's been talking about than is this is the secret itself. Does that make sense? Are we tracking? For us to really understand this, I think we have to redefine hope a little bit. There's a couple years ago when I was sitting in a treatment team, my supervisor said, one of the, uh, the problems with hope, hope had come up with one of the clients that another therapist was working. He said, oh, you gotta be really careful when hope comes up because hope is a trap. My the supervisor at the time, this was several years ago, she's not a Christian, she's a Buddhist. And I said, okay, full pause, Laura. I need you to tell me what you mean when you say hope is a trap. And she basically said, hope is conditional reassurance. Hope is, I'll be okay if. I hope that because if they forgive me or if the bonus comes through or if the thing happens the way that I want it to happen, I will have hope. Hope is if. And she's absolutely right. If we define hope, from the perspective of the world. If we define hope as somebody who's located in a universe where we're all on our own, hope is hope if. But biblical hope is very different. Biblical hope is hope in. It's, I don't, it doesn't matter what your circumstances are. Hope is the ability to access that future emotional reality. I don't know what it is yet, but I know it's gonna be in my favor. I don't know, what it, I don't know what's gonna happen, 
but I know God is going to use it for my good. There's a moment at Christmas when your kids are little and they're waking up at like 4 a.m. and they can't hold still. They're so restless. That's biblical hope. They don't know what is downstairs, but their body can feel it. They can sense that it's good. And when we get stuck in, in anxiety, we get stuck in defeat, we get stuck in frustration. The feeling is we only have to have two options with our emotions. Either I go into my emotions steer the car and I'm powerless and there's nothing I can do. That I, my, I need my circumstances to change for me to feel better, for me to feel peace. Or I go into the opposite extreme where I say emotions aren't trustworthy. Emotions are irrational. Emotions are, are not a good thing and you, you try and bury them. It's actually, a, it's a pretty common thing to kind of show up in the office where one spouse would be like, I can't talk to them when they're like this. They're so emotional. Like, you look angry right now. That is an emotion. There's no getting out of emotion. And it's also important to remember that emotion is not the invention of the devil. That emotion is not this thing that we have to treat with mistrust. I saw a meme really recently that said, the devil wants you to listen to your emotions, but God wants you to listen to truth. And you're like, okay, on a certain level, there, there are conditions where that's probably true. But that's only if, if my emotion defines reality. If I receive my emotion as just trying to tell me how I'm organizing my reality, the sense that I'm making out of it, like when you don't call me back very quickly and I feel hurt, I have just ascribed meaning to the speed at which you call me back. So if I get to that curiosity and that hurt and I say, oh man, I wonder why I'm feeling this, that's, that's your emotions working really well. Because God is emotional, that your emotion actually reflects his nature. And he does not feel emotions gentle. Like when he feels angry, he, like, he burns with anger. When he feels dislike, it's not, it's not mild. Like he despises sin. Like he feels a big, he feels in a big way. I'm pretty sure God's Italian. And you are made in his image. And so the problem is an emotion. The problem is our relationship to emotion. The problem is understanding how to listen to it so that it empowers me to realign with my creator. And so I want to do, I want to do an experiment with you guys. I want you guys to close your eyes for a second. This is what we call a state change exercise. I want you to have an experience that God actually equipped you to guide your physiology. God's actually given you the tools to tell your body that it's safe to feel safe. And so the first thing I want you to do is actually recall a recent memory where you felt frustrated about something. Hopefully not like a, a 10, because I want you to come back to me in just a second, but a moment where you felt recently frustrated. And I want you to just picture in your mind the image that best represents the, the most frustrating part of that situation. And just focus on it, just let it become real to you, pull out some details. What is the facial expression on the other person? Or what's happening? Just really focus your attention on it. And as you're doing that, I want you to notice what's happening in my chest as I focus my attention on this frustrating situation. What is happening in my torso or in my belly? What's happening in my face, in my head? How is my nervous system responding to this frustrating memory, because that's usually what we're talking about when we describe emotion. When we say, I feel angry, I feel scared, what we're describing is, I feel tension in my chest, it's hard to breathe, I feel heat 
in my cheeks. I feel cloudiness or pressure in my head. And those somatic signals, that alarm system is telling me I'm not safe. Okay, now what I want you to do is clear the slate. I want you to look at a black backdrop. Keep your eyes closed. And now I want you to think of a moment. It doesn't have to be recent. I want you to think of any moment where you felt intensely connected to somebody. That you felt deeply connected first moment that comes up for me is the first time I ever held my daughter, Olivia. Maybe it's a moment with a a partner, a spouse, maybe a moment with a friend where you're getting into mischief. A moment that you felt intensely connected to somebody. I want you to focus on that image. I want you to just look at what what is the light doing in that that image, that memory? Where's the light? What do you hear as you focus on that memory? What what was the sound going on in that moment? And what you're doing as you direct yourself to the details of that memory is you're actually telling your brain that that memory is valuable, valid data about the present. Because your brain is recalling the somatic state, the emotional state of your body in that memory moment. And now redirect your attention. What's happening in my chest as I focus on this memory? What's happening in my head, in my face? Is there more space in my lungs? Is it easier to breathe? Does that heat light, lighten up a little bit or the pressure in my head ease up a little bit? What you're observing when you observe that physiological shift is what we call state change. And it's an example of God gave us the ability to train our nervous system to downregulate even when our circumstances don't appear safe that we can ground ourselves in his love and his protection, that anytime I need to, I can take myself back to that moment when God showed up, when he restored that relationship, when he provided for that bill, when he, he rescued that person in my life. I can go back to those moments and I can recall the fact that what was true then is true right now. The goodness of God that was available to me then is available to me right now. And what God has done in the past, he wants me to walk and step into in the future. And so we have the ability, just like Paul taught us, that we can actually access the safety of God. Even if we can only access it in a memory, we can manifest that in our body in the present. Does that make sense? Are you with me? So there is a, um, there's a tool that is helpful for this that I call thought alignment. And this is just, if this is something that your, your heart, your body's telling you, oh, it's time to do some work. This is a very concrete way of doing this work. I'm going to walk through it really quickly. Situation means what triggered the, what triggered, the person didn't text me back, they didn't call me back. That's the situation. Initial response means what did I feel? Oh, I felt anxiety. I started to think about it more and more. I felt tightness in my chest. Negative thought was, I'm annoying them. They don't like me. They're frustrated with me. They're not happy with me. I'm projecting meaning onto this situation. Aligned thought means, okay, what I've just done in those first three categories is I've decoded the alarm system. The way that we regain power over negative emotional signals is not by resisting them. What we resist emotionally intensifies. We we regain power over negative emotional systems by redirecting, by saying, okay, I hear you. There's a part of my brain, there's a part of my story, there's a part of my experience that teaches me there's something unsafe about this situation. I hear you. I'm gonna ground myself in what's true. 
I'm going to ground myself in that. Even if this person's upset with me, I am still loved and saved. Even this person is upset with me, that God is for me and lots of other people love me. And what I'm going to do is once I've understood, I've made space, I've welcomed that experience to the table, they're allowed to be there. I'm also going to say, you don't get to steer the car. And I align my thought and say, what is a way that I can bring this thought into alignment with God's love and God's truth? And just like you did a second ago, the way that we install new thoughts so that they become automatic is through the salience of emotion. So I actually want to focus my attention on how does that thought, that aligned thought, God's provision, God's power, God's goodness, how does it actually impact my body on an emotional level? Because if I practice that, my brain will start to do it all by itself. But the emotion, the experience of it is actually the thing that installs it. Does that make sense? Are you with me? So as I wrap up real quick, you guys can close your eyes. I just want to pray for you. If as we're walking through this, you're able to identify, yep, there are some challenging, there are some challenging emotions in my life. There are moments when anxiety feels overwhelming. There are moments when I feel like I can't shake off anger. There's a moment where sadness or a feeling of aloneness feels like just debilitating. I just want to pray for you. So raise your hand. Oh God, thank you so much for every hand. Lord, I pray for every heart who's raising their hand. And I pray in Jesus' name, you would install the hope that you are going to break the power of these negative emotions and the fear that they are powerless to these signals. Lord, in Jesus' name, we create space for your power, for your provision, for your love. We loose the power of fear and we welcome the safety of your sovereignty, God. We know that if we redirect our attention to you, that you will root us, root us so deeply that it becomes habitual, that peace becomes our normal. We claim this and pray for this in the name of Jesus. I also wanna leave you with the reality that a practice like the aligned thought, that is what I consider discipleship. That is how we take what God is doing in our life and we walk it out on a daily basis. But it's important to remember that discipleship starts with deliverance. The work that we do to rewire our heart starts with the Holy Spirit doing the work that only the Holy Spirit can do. So if you see a pattern in your life, a pattern of fear, a pattern of anxiety, a pattern of anger, the first thing I want to encourage you to do is in a couple of minutes when the ministry team is available to go down, let somebody hold your hand so you can feel the presence of somebody else's hope, holding hope over your life. Tell them, I see a pattern. Don't say, I'm afraid. Say, fear has been impacting me, debilitating me. I've, I've been afraid that this is too powerful for me. And I'm, I'm realizing that God is calling me to trust that he's gonna break this pattern. But we always wanna start with deliverance. And then, then the work that I showed you, then we get to walk down every single day, amen? Wow, what an amazing word. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Hey, listen, for more information about our church, go to www.awakenchurch.com or subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't already and download our app. It is amazing. It is chock full of incredible messages, information about upcoming events, and you can even support our ministry if you feel so inclined. We loved having you with us today. We look forward to seeing you again. God bless you. 
Live a life that is transformative. Bye for now.